Welcome to BioChat, a podcast by Apple Technology. My name is Tim Love, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only Apple's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming Dr. Chi-Ping Max Chu. Max is the Associate Investigator in the Institute of Cellular and System Medicine at the National Health Research Institute in Taiwan. His focus is actually studying prostate cancer, which we're going to talk about heavily today. Hi. Hi, King. Hi, everyone. So how's Taiwan? Yes, it's morning 10, almost 10 o'clock in Taiwan now. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a windy, cloudy morning. So, Max, you actually were born in Taiwan. You came uh, to us from Taiwan, and then you ended up, I guess, at Purdue before you we met at the University of Chicago. So uh, how was growing up in Taiwan? Like, uh, is it very much different than, I say, you know, your kids growing up in the United States while you were postdoc? Actually, I was born in Taipei, Taiwan. And I actually finished all my education in Taiwan from elementary school to uh, the university. And actually, I even uh, completed my military duty uh, in Taiwan. Uh, at that time, every boy had to serve for two years. And compared to the states, um, the school system in Taiwan actually, you know, the kids need to go to the, uh, the school at around, I think, 7.30. And then uh, we finish at uh, around like 4.30 to 5 o'clock. So it's actually much longer time compared to the state's uh, school. And actually, uh, as you know, I think in all the Asian country, uh, it's kind of competitive. And so uh, actually the kids have more pressure for reading and having exam in the school. Um, I still think uh, we still learn a lot, um, especially we we learn uh the math and science, but but I think it's a good chance to study uh the graduate school in states. So when I finished my military service, I joined Purdue University for uh, studying the physics PhD program. So at Purdue, it actually is kind of you know a very very nice place that we actually have a lot of free time. To talk to uh, together with the professor and the classmates, and also we have chance to get into the lab or join different group uh, to study different uh, aspect of the physics. But that time I, I realized that I actually I'm more interested in biological science, and that's why I apply again for the University of Chicago, and and that's why I end up at the University of Chicago for my PhD study, and. I think that's a very correct and a good decision because actually I find a lot of interesting thing I am uh, I like to do, especially for the cancer biology. Yes, uh, I think there, there's a really cool story because we talked about this when we were together in Dr. Jones's lab. But you drove a tank yes. or something, didn't you? <laughs> so that that's uh, something that we are not compelled to do as United States citizens. Like it's a volunteer military, but in a lot of different countries, including Taiwan and like France or Israel, they, they make you do like two years of military service. Yes, yes. Actually, I, I think especially for a state or a country uh, that has to face some um, possibility of war, 
I think the, the right thing to do that we have to serve for the military uh, because uh, you, you protect the country for like one or two years and then other people protect you for, for the rest of the time. And uh, in the army, actually, I think a lot of people think it's a waste of time because you just follow the instruction and you, you do whatever they, they told you to do. But I still think uh, it's a good chance uh, for you to learn the different people in the society. Now we are in the academic uh, institute or research field. So we don't have many chance to meet people that actually do like very different kind of job. When I was, was in the army, actually I, I met people from different companies, people uh, from a very low, low level of the society that's kind of, you know, uh, poor and they struggle and to a very uh, high level of the society. They all joined the army and that's what they need to do. Even I met someone that at that time he was 17 years old, he already had two kids and he actually got divorced for one year. And so you, you can imagine that, uh, you know, you met different kind of people and that that's a place that we can actually have very special experience to build up our characteristics. Yes. Yeah, and I imagine it gave you a lot of really good discipline too, because you have to be extremely disciplined that when you're in the military, just following orders, time management, and you you are actually a very good resource, like a good mentor for me when we were in lab. You know, you had knew a lot of techniques. Uh, it's very interesting your path though, because you went after you came into the University of Chicago. You were with Dr. Susan Liao, right? And uh, yes. if I'm not mistaken, and you can correct me on this, he actually either characterized or cloned the androgen receptor, which is a really big step in understanding prostate cancer. When I joined Dr. Shudong Liao's lab, Professor Liao already worked, has already worked uh, in the field of prostate cancer and androgen receptor for, I think, more than 40 years. And his lab actually cloned the androgen receptor. Additionally, he actually identified the 5-alpha reductase that actually convert the testosterone to 5-alpha DHT. And he found that the DHT is the actual androgen that, that uh, work in the cell instead of testosterone. And he also, I think he also found a lot of other interesting findings such as that uh, they also clone the LXR beta. Okay, uh, so that's another nuclear receptor. His lab is a very traditional biochemistry uh, lab. And when I visit, uh, when I have my interview at the University of Chicago, I actually find some time to visit him. And I, I found his lab to be a very interesting place to stay. And therefore, I asked uh, for his permission to join his lab. Uh, he did not agree un until like, when I was like, second year in the University of Chicago. And at that time, not many people in his lab because uh, his principle is that he want to keep the lab uh, no more than six people. So at that time, uh, two very senior research associates, uh, Rick Kipaka uh, and John Kokantis, both of them actually worked for Professor Liang more than 20 years. And then another uh, Japanese postdoc, Junji, uh, Fukuji, and he has been there for I think six or six years, and all three of them are very hardworking. 
people. And then another Chinese postdoc called Song Qing. Uh, he's the one that identified the Alexa beta. Actually, different from Professor uh, Richard Jones, uh, Professor Liao, he will not give you uh, any instruction what you should do. And so basically, I have to find my research topic. And so at that time, I decided to do prostate cancer instead of the uh, Alzheimer's disease because uh, his lab is doing both research at that time. And so I focus on the androgen receptor and prostate cancer. One of the reasons is that uh, I want to work for cancer biology to cure people. The other is that uh, because Dr. Hipaka and Dr. Kokantis work on prostate cancer, I, I think I can learn a lot from them. We actually discussed together to figure out some of the topics that uh, both myself and Professor Leo are interested. And so uh, we decided uh, to study the uh, molecular mechanism, how the castration resistant prostate cancer develop, and uh, to use some of the natural compound uh, at that time, it's the uh, green tea, the EGCG, uh, to suppress the resistant cancer. Uh, so I worked for a while, then uh, not not many interesting things we identified. But when I tried to talk to Dr. Fukuji, at that time, uh, he's working on the LX uh, project. So finally, we came, up, we came up with an idea. Why not to try to combine both the LXR project and the prostate cancer project. And so we treat the prostate cancer cell with the LXR agonist, the uh, thyroid compound, T0901713. Uh, and we boost and activate the LXR receptor and you know, very unexpectedly, that suppress the progression of the prostate cancer cell. And uh, so from that that time, we found that LXR may also play some role in the cancer bio, uh, the, you know, the regulation of the cancer cell survival and metastasis and progression. I published one other paper in cancer research. So actually from that time, I think you, you can, if you uh, do a search on the PubMed, now you will almost find that, you know, different kind of cancer they all show that some role of the LXR receptor to regulate the tumor growth or metastasis of this kind of cancer. And so I think that also makes, makes sense because LXR, DBX uh, receptor uh, is the receptor that regulates the uh, transport of cholesterol and also the synthesis of fatty acids. So because the cholesterol and fatty acids are very important for the growth of tumor and sometimes the metastasis of cancer. And so it makes sense that when you regulate the LXR, you will interfere the tumor growth or the metastasis. Yes. Yeah. So you're basically disrupting the metabolism of that growing tumor, trying to slow it down by essentially starving it somehow. Yeah. What what exactly does that receptor bind, the liver X uh, receptor? It, was it just the fatty acids, any kind of lipid, or is there like a specific other ligand that binds it? It has been a long time that people cannot find the ligand for the LXR. Uh, finally, I think about 20 years ago, they find that uh, the, the acidized cholesterol uh, derivative, uh, 
they they are the ligand, natural ligand for the uh, LXR. Okay, and of of course, uh, some company also synthesize the agonist. So in nature, the RC sterol, uh, when you can imagine that when they accumulate, uh, the cell will sense the change of the, the cholesterol level, and so they will activate the LXR and to move the cholesterol into the macrophage or some cell. Okay, and also that they, they regulate the synthesis of the fatty acid. So this is how the LXR being regulated. And there's two isoforms, alpha and beta. So people found that when, when you activate the LXR, DBX uh, receptor, LXR alpha, you actually try to move away the cholesterol and that reduce the atherosclerosis and the develop of a cardiovascular disease. So uh, that's why the company tried to treat the animal model with the LX agonist because in the animal model I showed very very good result to prevent the cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis. However, I think that uh, eventually found that the compound may have liver toxicity. And so uh, all these companies, they, they try to slow down this research. And for a very long time, they, they don't know uh, what the LX beta is doing. Um, finally, they found that when you activate the LX beta for a very long time in the uh, mice model, that prevent the development of the Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so the LXR beta actually is involved in the regulation of glucose, inflammation, and the neuron degeneration. Both of these compounds, I, I would say they, they are very important for the aging disease. And so activation of this uh, LXR alpha or beta can prevent you know, the cancer and uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, if we can develop a good drug without liver toxicity that would you know solve a lot of problem. And by our finding and other groups finding activation of the LXR also prevent uh, the tumor growth, metastasis, and uh, the relapse of the cancer. So I, I think that's also one uh, other ben benefit uh, for developing drug targeting LXR. Switching facts because you know you you had talked about the natural compounds as you know Chinese folks we are probably very familiar with natural therapies like ginseng and honey and other herb, herbal teas that our grandmothers forced on us when we were young yes. right so some of that yes. you said was the EGCG which is in green tea, and I'm not even going to try to say the name is very long. There's something called cape. I think that's in honey. Then, then there's other things that you actually worked on when we were uh, building the micro-Western array in Dr. Jones's lab. So maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit about how you decided to work on the natural uh, remedies to try to fight cancer and how we used our technology to help you with those uh, topics. When I was in Chicago, I tried to look at a, uh, a compound, a pure compound called caffeic acid phenacyl ester, CAPE. That's the derivative of the caffeic acid. Actually, it's a strong antioxidant, 
uh, and also a main component of propolis. Propolis is the uh, honeybee glue. Okay, so the the bee actually uh, they bite the the tree and to mix with uh, a lot of different things to make this very sticky stuff. The propolis, they use the propolis to fix their net, and mm. also the propolis can prevent the invention of the uh, uh, bacteria and fungus. And so actually, you know, I think uh, in different area uh, in the world, people try to use uh, the honey and the propolis and to, you know, for a lot of the traditional medicine. I noticed that the CAPE, the Capex Financial Aster, um, has been reported in, you know, some other cancer that they suppress the preparation and migration of this cancer cell. The only problem for the natural compound study is that uh, it's very difficult to uh, figure out what's the real mechanism because they are very complicated. So when I first tried to use the CAPE, I found that plus cancer cell, they were very sensitive to this compound. Okay, And so uh, I applied the micro-Western array uh, to study the change of the protein, signaling protein uh, in the proscanal cell being treated with the cafe acyphenacyl aster. And interesting uh, thing we observe is that uh, actually they target specific pathway, you know, not a lot of protein, only specific pathway. Basically, it's the AKT signal pathway, PS3AKT, and then the CMIC. Okay, and you, you know, these two are very important for the survival and progression of cancer, especially breast cancer, because I think 70% of the people with breast cancer, they have P10 mutation. And P10 is the negative regulator of the PS3KAKT signaling. And so, AKT uh, is actually increased, regulated. So in the past, uh, I would say in the past 13 years, uh, we continue to study the effect of the cap on the prost cancer. So uh, we found that uh, not only uh, can the cap suppress the tumor growth of the prost cancer, they also suppress the cancer metastasis. The mechanism is actually how different uh, they activate the non-canonical win single pathway, the receptor called ROR2. ROR2 is uh, a receptor that actually is found to regulate the bone formation. And I think that makes sense because you know uh, bone is the most favorite site uh, for the prost cancer cell to make metastasis. Okay, and so by activate the non-canonical win pathway. R2, they suppress the traditional, the canonical wind pathway and, and actually suppress the EMT. And that's why the cap can suppress the cancer metastasis. And then we found the more interesting finding is that the cap actually suppresses the stability of the androgen receptor. Okay, the androgen receptor, you know, is the nuclear receptor. They have to uh, bind, uh, bind each other to form a dimer and then go into the nucleus to serve as the transcriptional factor that can activate a lot of downstream uh, gene that regulate the proliferation and survival of the cancer cell. And most, or as I would say, all of the medicine we currently use, they try to block the endocrine receptor signaling. 
okay, by two ways. Uh, one is to act as anti-nodrin. So they can compete with anodrin to bind the receptor. Or the other thing is to block uh, uh, the synthesis of anodrin. So for example, enalutamide uh, is the medicine uh, that act as anti-nodrin to compete with anodrin. While the aberrelon is the one that block the synthesis, the first step of synthesis of androgen uh, from the collateral. Both these two compounds uh, reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, they actually can extend the lifespan of the patient for a couple months. The problem is that more than half of the patient will develop drug resistance because the androgen receptor is still there. But what we found is that uh, the CAP can actually uh, suppress AKT and CDK1. And these two kinases actually phosphorate the serine 213 and serine 81 on the receptor, androgen receptor, that regulate the stability, the transcription, and nuclear entrance of the AR. So when we treat a cell with the CAP, they suppress this proportion and then decrease the stability of the AR. So finally, they take the AR for degradation by proteasome. So they completely eradicate the receptor. And, and this is very different uh, from the mechanism uh, that's being used for the current drug. So I believe that uh, in future, uh, it's possible to modify the structure of the CAP uh, because now it's working at the micromole range. Uh, but if we can reduce that to the nanomole range, uh, that can be a useful drug for the cancer patient and to just take the AR for degradation. That may prevent the development of the drug resistance. Okay. Mm. And that's one of my major research uh, topics. And the other interesting one is we collaborate with the South South African team to do the research on Louisville's. Okay. The Louisville's is a beverage that's become more and more popular. And the the interesting thing is that Louisville's only grow in South Africa, not in any other part of the world. And it's actually it does not contain any caffeine because it's more like a grass. It's not a tea. Mm. Uh, but it tastes so nice okay like flower flavor and so people like to drink it because it does not contain the caffeine so my collaborator they they found that uh about 10 years ago the louis boss uh, has a major compound called espanacin espanacin uh has some structure that is similar to the diabetes drug they found that uh actually they have some preventive effect to prevent the diabetes. The problem uh, of the people there is that a lot of uh, people has poor economic status. So they, they don't have the ability to uh, take medicine for a very long time to treating the diabetes. So my collaborators they are working on uh, uh, doing the clinical trial to use the Louisville's drink to uh, control the, the diabetes in South Africa. And so when we started the collaboration about say, seven years ago, we started to examine if the Louisville's has some anti-cancer effect. And interesting that the Louisville's can also 
suppress the AKT to suppress the tumor growth of prostate cancer. And also the, uh, the asparagine can suppress the YAP, YP, the hippo YAP pathway. So yeah. it, it can suppress the cancer metastasis. And so I, I would say that's an interesting finding because uh, compared to the drug, the Lewibos has no side effect. It's just a daily beverage, a very good flavor beverage. So it's possible uh, that in future, the patient can drink the Lewibos to control or prevent the recurrence of the cancer. Yes. Yeah, basically using a natural therapy as a more economically sound way for people who just don't have all the money to get all the drugs all the time. So that's actually a really yeah. cool alternative, especially if it's something that you drink, you know, uh, on your own anyway. And I actually yes. didn't know Roybos only grew in South Africa. Like I drink Roybos <laughs> sometimes because uh, we, we get our tea from Safeway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a very interesting <laughs> point. When we were at UChicago together in Dr. Jones' lab, we actually all in some way or other helped develop the micro-Western platform, but you actually brought it over from the lab to Taiwan. So, you know, that nanoplot yes. is still at UChicago somewhere, but you actually got your own. Yes. So actually, it's, at the beginning, it's not that difficult uh, to set up the micro-Western array system because, as you know, we combine three parts of a uh, machine from different company to form the system, right? And so uh, you just use the the, the code uh, was developed by Mark, Mark Churchill uh, to run the system. The setup of the system is not very difficult. The problem is that the support of the antibody uh, library. And that's why I, I chose to join the National Health Research Institute in Taiwan. At that time, actually, I got an offer from university and an offer from the NHI. The, the, the thing is that NHI is a more uh, a research institute that has more resources to, to develop this kind of antibody library. And so we currently collect around, I think, 600 different antibody, although not still very much, but uh, I think it's useful and informative to to use this uh, 600 NMRD to study multiple important single pathway. So we try to uh, collect the good NMRD from well-known company. We we collect a lot of good NMRD to do the research. And, and all the people that, that had, uh, have uh, known this te technique, they are very interesting because compared to the array, I think the regular protein array, uh, this is the you can de decide the the antibody handle you want to test. And compared to the mass spec, you know, usually in the mass spec, you only detect the most abundant proteins. But this one, you can specific, as long as you have good antibody, you can specifically to target the pathway you want to look at. And so uh, we try to, I think for the first five years, we trained my lab member and one technician in the core facility. Uh, to perform this uh, micro poison array to assist the research in our institute. And then after that, we now open to help uh, all the uh, researchers in Taiwan. Whenever, uh, whoever want to, to use, we just uh, uh, charge 
for them. I think now it's about 600 US dollars uh, per panel and and to to help them to to perform the micro right? array. I see more than 50 or 60 different labs uh, outside the NHI and I think five uh, pharmaceutical companies have used this technology. And a lot of them have good results. They even published a good paper about, about uh, the finding. It's a very good system. I think there's another system in New York. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mount Hospital, yeah. But I'm I'm surprised that uh, not many other institutes develop this uh, system. Yeah, I think the part of is that it just is a lot of overhead to start up because you do have to get the plotter, you have to get you know the specialized equipment, you have to train people. But the most, the big thing is just the nano plotter itself. It, it's like several hundred thousand dollars. So I think that's like a yeah. major major obstacle, but the fact that you're able to work as a core facility supporting so many people, that's part of the attraction, right? Because now yes. they they kind of defray the cost of all those antibodies, and you know, I'm glad in some small way our company is actually helping you <laughs> because, uh, you know, we, we do make a lot of our own antibodies in-house, and other companies sometimes yes. they yes. just kind of buy stuff from probably us, and then they sell it. Uh, to you at a markup. So, yeah, actually, I, I think Rich uh, would be really pleased to know that his uh, his invention is still doing some really great work all these years later, because he hasn't uh, actually yeah. been in academic science for a very long time. But, you know, the legacy yes. does live on. Yeah. How are you enjoying uh, doing what you do now? Do you teach, Max? Do you, uh, you, have, you still have to write grants, or is the grant the funding system different in Taiwan than it is in the States where like a lot of uh, entry-level professors are having trouble still finding funding? Yeah, I think the funding is uh, the most challenge in States uh, because as, as, uh, when we w- were in Chicago, we I think at that time they say the average is that uh, the PI will get the first NIH funding at the average age of uh, 46. So, you know, that's almost like 10 years after they become uh, assistant professor. In Taiwan, I think uh, it's easier uh, for the PI, the young investigator, to uh, get the funding from uh, we call a National Science and Technology Council. The funding rate here in Taiwan is about 40%. Okay, so I think 40% is not too bad. The only problem is the funding site. As I remember, for the NHR1 grant, if you got one, uh, it's like, uh, I think it's uh, one, one million US dollars for about five years. And the university can get additional overhead. Uh, so in, in, in Taiwan, uh, the funding rate is about 40%, uh, 40%, yes, compared to, I think, uh, 7% in U- US. So it's easier to get funding in Taiwan. But the funding size is only like 20% of that in US. Okay. The average funding each year is about 30,000 US dollars. And this includes the overhead for the university. Unlike in states, uh, you get an R1, the overhead is, is not included in the funding. The NIH will give the overhead to institute. But in Taiwan, this 30,000 including the institute 
overhead, which about uh, which was about like fifteen percent in average. So the size is not very very much. The salary for the researcher uh, in Taiwan is about I think half of that in in US. So you pay less for the graduate student and postdoc technician, but uh, it's still not so much. But uh, the the policy for the Taiwanese government is that they want as many uh, researchers to get a funding so they can do research. And although not much, but at least you get something. And so it's important for the scientists in Taiwan to uh, do collaboration because as you know that now for the high impact journal, uh, one research requires a lot, a lot of different uh, high advanced technology. And it's impossible for individual lab to use the uh, small funding to do all of this. So collaboration is very important in Taiwan. Smart scientists and good students from uh, every country of, from, uh, of the world and also you know, a lot of funding. Uh, but I think uh, we are doing better and better in Taiwan now and still trying to do some, yeah, yeah, some good research. Yes. Yeah, your social uh, support system is probably also better than what we have currently the United States. So like, even though you're paid less, you're probably better taken care of than us. But uh, that's another story altogether. Uh, how's your family doing, by the way? They Are they enjoying Taiwan much more than in the States because all the family's still there? My daughter, actually, when she left States, uh, she was uh, three years old. So uh, she haven't went to school at that time. Uh, she is doing well. In Taiwan, um, now uh, she's tenth, uh, let me, eleventh grade, eleventh grade uh, in high school, and my son is fourth grade. In I spend time with my my parents. Uh, my father actually passed uh, three years ago, so if if I work in states, I won't have too much time to accompany him, and so it's a good decision uh, for me to come back. Uh, to be with him for a couple of years. Yeah, um, so uh, I think although it's very crowded here and in, you know, the uh, political situation is complicated, but most people are very friendly here and the food mm -hmm. actually tastes good. So yeah, oh, yeah. we are having a good time here. Yeah. yeah Mandarin style or Taiwanese style restaurants are really good too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I imagine yeah, so it's a little different over there than in uh, Chicago's Chinatown. But uh, I did have yeah. jealous. I grew up in Hong Kong, so there was a little bit of like British and and of course Chinese uh, yes, yes. influence because of the, the dual nature of the political situation at the time when British still colonized uh, Hong Kong. But uh, yeah, yes. I, I might head back next year for my grandpa's 90th birthday. I haven't been to Hong Kong in a very Ooh. long time. So street food. Yeah. yeah, Taiwanese street yeah. food, Hong yeah. Kong style street food, you know, that's probably the one of the best yes. reasons to, to visit those places. Yeah, well, uh, Max, thank you so much for taking the time uh, across the planet to talk to me about your research. I'm glad you're doing well and you're getting, you know, your collaborations of finding really cool ways to use natural remedies. And, you know, I'm glad your family is doing well. So, um, yeah, thank you, you so anything. much for the invitation. I, it's very nice to talk to you. Yeah, after these years, very nice. Yes.
Yeah, I mean, we're we're friends on Facebook, and I see you post all the time, and it, it looks like you're traveling all over the place too. So I'm glad you still have an opportunity to travel, go to conferences, uh, show your research, and I I did look on your PubMed page for you know Max Chu or Chiping Chu. And you have like yes. over 90 publications, so you're very prolific, and I'm glad for all your success. Yeah, thank you. This has been a conversation with Dr. Chiping Max Chu at the Institute of Cellular and System Medicine at the National Health Research Institutes in Taiwan. And we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of Apple Technology hosted and edited by myself and Monk. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes linked to Dr. Speaker's page on Apple.com, where you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or any comments, or to inquire about Apple's quality product and services, please send a message to service at Apple.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.